why did you come here today? <laughs> why, why do you show up each, each Lord's Day? Um, why tune in on the live stream on this Lord's Day? Why, why attend our sun, Sunday gatherings? Don't get up and leave because you're not sure why you're here. And what well, a good question. No. no, but when you do come, why participate in them? Why sing, stand and sing? Why uh, involve yourself with the responsive readings as we read Scripture together? Why, why pray? Why take communion? Why listen to sermons? Why does Patrick and the team bother preparing and practicing ahead of the gatherings? Why, why do our volunteers and our staff come early to, and stay late to make sure that all these things are in place and, and, um, and our audiovisual folks and our child care workers and our deacons and others that are working in these ways? Why, why do we make effort to talk with one another and engage with one another and encourage one another and, 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 um, and, and, and welcome one another in these gatherings? Why do that? Well, personally, why spend 20 to 30 hours, depending on the passage that we're in, preparing to preach on, uh, sun, in our Sunday gatherings? Now, it may not be obvious at first glance, as we've only read five verses of chapter 14, but if you're familiar with this chapter, and we're, as we're going to walk through it in a moment, but, but these are the kinds of questions that, that we get help in answering from this text. These, these why questions. Paul is getting to the why and the why not of our church gatherings and our participation in them. That's what he's dealing with here. Maybe, maybe we should say this up front. There are right and wrong reasons to participate in worship. There are. There are good and bad attitudes that we could have as we come into these gatherings. There are noble and ignoble motives. There, it's possible that we could passionately participate and, and, and be zealously committed to our church gatherings and do it for less than stellar reasons. We could, we could at least be immature, as Paul's going to say in verse 20, childish in our thinking about the Lord's Day gathering and our involvement in them, just as the Corinthian believers were. And so in chapter 14, Paul's getting down now to these nitty-gritty details of an issue in the Corinthian church that we've seen developing for some time now. And so he's taken three whole chapters in this letter, chapters 12 to 14, to address some questions that they've asked him, or at least some reports that he's heard about the gatherings in Corinth, and so we're not sure exactly which, but, but what we have is one side of the communication, and so we have to sort of kind of feel it and understand and piece together the situation that's behind it. But we can at least say that in the church at Corinth there, there was this splintering that was happening, and it was happening along the lines uh, over the gift of tongues and its use in the church assembly, the gathering. And so there had developed this, we've been talking about this kind of spiritual stratification in the church there, and so based on those who had the gift of tongues and those who didn't. So those who had the gift of tongues, some felt the sense of superiority, it seems, and, and, and over those that didn't. And those who didn't have the gift maybe felt inferior to those who did or, or even maybe thought they didn't see any benefit to the gift. And so he, there's, there's, we look down at verse 39 of this chapter, and it may be that some wanted Paul to just say, hey, just forbid it. Tell them to stop doing it in the assembly. And so, so that's kind of the bone of contention in Corinth that we've been, we've been kind of bumping up against. And so how does Paul address this matter? Well, he does so very carefully, very carefully. And so first he spends two chapters, as we've been looking at, laying the groundwork for the specific instructions that he finally now gives to them in, in chapter 14. So in chapter 12, remember, he pointed them, he pointed us to, to celebrate the unity, to cherish the diversity within the church. And he used that body metaphor and so one body many members all valuable all important and and so his point is that all of all of the gifts are needed and valuable and 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 distributed differently within the church body by God's very good design he knew what he was doing he knows what he's doing and then in chapter 13 he called them he called us to to Christ-like love the but more excellent way, the far, far, far more excellent way. So that operating system of love, remember we talked about this, it needs, to be, it needs to be in place in our lives and in our church for these gifts that God has given the church to be expressed and, and used uh, wonderfully and, and to, to, to exer be exercised properly in the church body. 
And so now, and he has those large kind of foundational principles in place, he begins in chapter 14 to deal with the really specific challenges that, that are related to the use of the gifts in the church gathering. And behind his instruction is this why question that I started with. Why? Why do we do what we do when we gather together? What's motivating us? What's our aim? What is it that we should care most about when we come together on the Lord's Day? Is a Sunday gathering a, a time for us to kind of perform in front of one another and draw attention to ourselves? Is that what it's about? Is it, or is it a time for us to just be in the same physical location or same room, but we're just communi communing individually with God, we just happen to be in the same place? Or is our time of worshiping God together uh, a time for edification of one another and even for evangelism of those who may be among us who are who are not trusting in Christ. So, what I just want you to see is that the Corinthian, Corinthians' immaturity in their thinking about the Lord's Day gathering is often our own immature thinking. I think we're going to see some parallels. Issues, specific questions and issues may be different, but we also can take God's very good gifts that He's given to us, spiritual gifts and other gifts, and we can use them for wrong purposes in the assembly. This is what they're doing. That's what this chapter is about. And this is a needed reminder and corrective to us, church. And so while it may appear at first appearance that this chapter is somewhat irrelevant to us, um, tongues and prophecy and, and these are the gifts he's talking about here, and what role do they have in the church, and that's, that's what he's working through here. But let me, let me just say up front, we've, I've mentioned this before, I, most of us believe, uh, and that's contrary to the convictions of our our charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we partner in the gospel, but we believe that the gifts of prophecy, at least in this form, and, and tongues no longer function in the church today the way that they did then. And so we talked about this a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 13, so I'm not going to rehash all of that, but, but this is a very unique time in the church in its earliest stage. And so they, they had no written New Testament. Just think about that. I mean, we just take this for granted that we have these bound copies of the Bible in our own language, and most of us have multiple copies and multiple translations, English translations, but and none of that. So no complete in New Testament. The, the apostles are still alive, and they're ministering among them, and, and, and the, the church is heavily dependent upon the apostles and the prophets that, that, that the church is being built upon. And, and so God gave the church at this very unique time these miraculous sign gifts during this age, to, to validate the ministry of the apostles and their message. And so in the absence of the scriptures, these gifts are given by God to teach them and to encourage them and to strengthen them and to protect them and to lead them and to help them during this time. <coughs> but as the New Testament canon came towards completion, these, these revelatory sign gifts, they, they became obsolete and they ceased to function in the church. And so we have now this more sure, complete, perfect, sufficient word in the Old and New Testament scriptures. And so, but this is a very unique time. So the question for us this morning, as we come to chapter 14, and we're talking about tongues and prophecy, these gifts that we're saying have ceased, who cares? Why are we spending time with this? Why don't we just skip to chapter 15, get to the good stuff, the resurrection? I mean, hey, I'm ready to get there too. And Easter's coming, so we're 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 ready. And so what does, is there any relevance here to us? And the answer is yes, there is. Because we also, brothers and sisters, we need to remember the why of our gatherings. The why. And so they valued and, and prized the wrong things in their gatherings the same way that many times that we value and prize the wrong things in our gatherings. We can be rather childish in our thinking as they were when it comes to thinking about Lord's Day worship. And so Paul has to say to them, what Paul has to say to them about the way Christian worship should be ordered for the glory of God and for the good of others, it remains urgent and necessary and is very helpful and very relevant to us just as much as it was when he first wrote this. So Paul's essentially, as we connect chapter 13 to 14, and so don't, I wanted to read those together because I want you to see there's no chapter breaks in Paul's line of thought here. This is all packaged together. So he's 
what he's doing in chapter 14 is he's, a, he's applying that standard of selfless, sacrificial, Christ-like, other-centered love, agape, that we saw in chapter 13. He's applying that to, to the Corinthians' attitude towards and behavior in worship. And so look back. The, 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 look at back at the very last verse of chapter 12 with me. Chapter 12, verse 31. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. And then he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. So he kind of leaves us hanging there. What are the higher gifts? What are the higher ones that we're supposed to earnestly desire? And, and because he goes into chapter 13, talks about that more excellent way, love and the essential need for love in the church. And now as we come out of chapter 13 into chapter 14, this is where he begins. He picks up that language from 1231. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So chapter 13 is not a rabbit trail. We talked about this. I, and, and, it, it, and it actually holds his whole response to them together. It is, it's the hub. And so everything he says to them flows out of this discussion on, about the importance of love among them. And so love is what the, we're to pursue Love that. Pursue love. This is, this is a word for all out, go for broke chase. Like a law, law enforcement chasing down a most wanted criminal. I mean, this is give it everything. And so as we give ourselves to this diehard pursuit of self-sacrificial love, there's going to be the sanctified prioritization of those activities that most directly achieve that goal of love in the body. And so I just want to, we'll see in this passage, and first thing, we're going, to see, we're going to see these two priorities, two priorities that love-motivated worshipers really will care about. Two priorities that love-motivated worshipers care about. First one is this, see it in verses 1 to 19. Love-motivated worshipers, they care a lot about edification in the church gathering. Love-motivated worshipers care a lot about edification in the church gathering. And so let's, this is his big point here. What, what is it that drives our participation in worship? It's the desire to see one another built up in Christ. You see this phrase over and over in these verses. Building up, building up, building up. Love compels us to use our spirit-given, spirit-empowered gifts for the good of one another every time we gather together. And so Paul says again in verse 1, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. Now, as, we, as it's going to become clear, Paul's telling them to, to privilege prophecy over tongue speaking in the assemblies. Now, is that because tongues are bad? Not at all. He's going to make that very clear. No, in verse 2 to 6, he explains why. He says, For the one who speaks a tongue in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So, we're going to see Paul kind of navigate between these two treacherous shoals as he, as he walks through this instruction to the church. And so on the one hand, he's got to confirm that tongue speaking is a wonderful, legitimate gift from God to them. It's, it's for them. It's for this time in the church, and it has a valuable place in the church at this time. And so Paul's not at all condemning or belittling this gift. No, he has it, and he exercises it. So that's one thing that he... One, uh, you know, shallower he has to avoid. The other one, on the other hand, he, he's trying to show that prophecy is a higher gift. It's a higher gift. Not that one is good and the other is bad, but that prophecy is preferred in the assembly for a reason. It's because of how important it is that the entire congregation be edified when they come together. That's what makes it a higher gift. So with tongues, unless there's someone present who has the gift of interpretation of tongues that can explain what's being said for everyone's benefit, the only person who know, in the world who knows what's being said is God Himself. The one who's speaking probably doesn't even understand what He's saying. And so, so and remember what this gift is. Uh, we've, I think we've talked about this before. But it's not, it's not just meaningless uh, babble of, of, of words that don't make any sense. No, the gift of tongues was this supernatural ability to speak a known language but a known language that you've never studied or learned before. So again, be like me speaking Russian or something like that. I've never taken Russian, never don't know any words in Russian. But, it, but this was instrumental in the early church. It was instrumental at Pentecost. We see this in Acts 2 as the gospels proclaimed to these pilgrims. It's a, it's a message of, of, of salvation to some. It's a message of judgment for those that rejected it. 
But it's also apparently used in the church as for prayer and praise and the assemblies. And so this is, again, an incredible, wonderful gift in the church at this time. But, but when it comes to the, to the church assembly, tongues without in, interpretation, unintelligible speech, it, 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 it's, it doesn't communicate to everyone. It doesn't. And yet, on the other hand, verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So contrary to unintelligible tongues, prophecy is intelligible to everyone. And because it's understood by all, it's very edifying. It, it builds people up. That's, that's the word. It encourages weary saints. It comforts and gives comfort to those who are sorrowful. Consolation. So it ministers to everyone who hears because everyone understands. That's his point. And so prophecy, uh, again, we've defined tongues, this gift of prophecy. It's, it's inspired revelation of truth given to a Christian for the church before the scriptures were completed. I think that's what he's talking about here. So not, not always or not even often predicting the future. That's how we tend to think of prophecy. Um, but but it, sometimes it would. But prophets had a message from God. They had special revelation from God. And and so you just, again, imagine the church in the first century. They needed apostles and prophets because they didn't have this. They didn't have the completed scriptures yet. So the church was built on the foundation, Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, of the apostles and prophets. And so these prophetic words from God, they're absolutely, they're, they're obviously incredibly edifying to these believers. This clear message of what God has spoken to his people Yes, it builds them up. And yes, it encourages the saints. And yes, it gives comfort to those who are hurting. And so you see this summary in verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now some have taken verse 4 to suggest that, that, that speaking in tongues is this gift that God has given for self-edification. And the gift of prophecy is given for uh, you know, the edification of the church. Corporate edification. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what Paul's doing is correcting this error that we've seen in the church already here. That there were some that were using the gift of tongues selfishly in the church gathering to, to promote themselves, to build themselves up. They're, they're building themselves up in pride in the assembly, seeking to exercise, the, instead of seeking to exercise the gift in a way that builds others up. I think that's what he's talking about. So this is what I want you to see. And this is a connection to us. Listen, in all that we do, in all the exercise of any gifts that God has given you or me, uh, whether it's preaching and teaching or ministration or helping or giving or whatever it is, we're to care about and labor for the good of others. This is what we care about. Edification is to be our aim. Building one another up. That's, that's what we're to care most about. And so he says in verses 5 and 6, so he says verse 5, Now I want you all to speak in tongues. That's great, but even more to prophesy. The one, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets. Here's, here's the big one again. Why? So that the church may be built up. That's the driving aim. That's what he's getting at. That's what's got to fuel everything. That's what's got to fuel everything for us, brothers and sisters. That's why we come. That's the why. That we build up one another. And then he uses himself as an example here to hammer this home. So verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? That's what he's saying. Now, let me just illustrate this. Imagine uh, I told you today that there is going to be this world-famous preacher that's coming through Atlanta next weekend. And he has agreed to come and preach here next Sunday morning. This is a phenomenal opportunity for our little church on Corinth Road. And so this is going to be, this man is the real deal. He's a man of God. He's a mighty theologian. He, he, is, he is a powerful preacher. He, he has impacted millions of people for the, for the gospel. He has preached to massive crowds. Every, every week his sermons are downloaded hundreds of thousands of times on the internet Thousands of people have been converted through his ministry. And, and he's going to be here next Sunday preaching at Barack Bible Church. 
So this is the week that that'll be the week that everybody comes out of uh, off the live stream and comes back, and we're we're busting out the doors, right? And you say, "Wow, that's amazing! That's that's great! I can't wait! What a what a wonderful impact this is going to have on my life and and having our church to have this rare wonderful opportunity." And so you show up next Sunday, and you're filled with excitement and and anticipation of this. And so after after Patrick leads us in singing, and we're all singing enthusiastic to the Lord, I get up and introduce our guest speaker to you. And I start by saying, well, I forgot to mention to you last week, uh, he's Korean, and he doesn't speak a lick of English. <laughs> so, so you are not going to be able to understand anything that he has to say this morning. And, and he goes on to preach in Korean for 50 minutes without a translator. What good is that? I mean, well, how, how are you built up by that? <laughs> well, that, That's what Paul's saying in verse 6. He, he's the leading apostle. He is the, this one that's commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he says, yet if I come to your church and I speak in tongues, what good is that to you? It does nothing. You can't understand me. You won't be strengthened in the faith. You won't be built up. You won't be comforted, encouraged, and helped like, you're, like you need. Why are you so excited about unintelligible speech in your gatherings? And so you, you're following his argument so far. So uninterpreted tongues, they're, they're unintelligible. They do nothing to build others up. They only serve, in this case, to kind of stoke the pride of the speaker. So what you really need, Paul's saying, what we really need to give our attention to, what our aim really needs to, in building one another, if you're going to benefit and grow and be built up, isn't the spectacular or the mysterious or the eerie. What you really need is a word of revelation, of knowledge, of prophecy, of teaching. You need clear, divinely revealed truth explained and applied with clarity and understanding and the power of the Holy Spirit to the hearts of all of those who hear. That's the way to build the church. That's how you're going to be built up. And so what matters is not how, how moving the worship gathering is or, 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 or is to the participant. What matters is that others are built up, edified. That's what we're to care about when we come together. And that, ed that edification happens through, through revealed truth, Paul says. For us, it's the scriptures. We have the completed canon. And so he's, this is what he goes on to say. And he uses two illustrations in verses 7 to 8 to drive this home even further if we haven't got it yet. So the first illustration is kind of from the concert hall. Look at verse 7. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? I mean, if notes on an instrument aren't distinguished by tones and pitch and, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, proper rhythm it's just noises it's not music it, you, if you've ever uh, been to a band concert or an orchestra that before the performance they're warming up on stage and they're just they're just playing all kinds of random things and doing scales some and they're playing in different keys it's just total chaos or, or if you've ever if you know the composer John Cage uh, uh, from years ago, but he, if you've ever heard anything, he, he writes what's called indeterminate music, and he believes that, you know, the best music is just random jumble of meaningless sounds, and it's just, it's nonsense to me, so, but Paul's saying that's what worship in Corinth is like, so I'm sorry for all the John Cage fans here, I've just offended you all, but the, the, Paul's saying there should be harmony, there should be symphony, there, that with, with each member bringing this distinct contribution, yet you're bringing it for the good of the whole. That's the way it's intended to be. But instead of the congregation being built up in this way, they're, they're confused. They're frustrated. They're divided because everyone is just kind of in it for themselves. They're all just doing their own thing when they come together. They're not concerned about whether or not people are being built up and edified. So he uses this illustration. Then he uses another illustration, and out of the, a, a military metaphor. He says, and if the bugle gives an indistinct sound... Who will get ready for battle? I mean, just our bugle, the, which is not too probably different from what they had, uh, but it's an incredible little instrument. 
It, it, it can communicate all kinds of different messages uh, as it's played by the bugle. It has no valves. It has no keys. It has no, no you know, anything to alter the pitch on it. And, and so it's just a few notes that it can play in that kind of harmonic series. And, and, but it can play all these distinct sounds. I looked up on the U.S. Army website just of the different bugle calls that, that, are, that are options. And so within any given day, there could be up to 25 bugle calls um, communicating all kinds of different orders to the troops. But listen, for the troops to understand what's being communicated, there has to be a certain sequence in order to the notes. There has to be order to the tones. It's not just a matter of standing up there and blowing it as loud as you can in whatever way you want and, and, and random noises. No, disconnected sound communicates nothing. And so if the bugler just wants to play improvisational jazz or something like that, yeah, some may love that and th get a kick out of that, but it, it, they'll have no clue what's going on. This is what he's saying. It will be chaos. And so Paul's point is language has to be clear. It has to be distinct. There's uh, a distinct for language for the, for the message to be communicated and to be understood. Look at the, He draws this connection. So he uses these illustrations himself. It's music instruments. Then he pulls it in verse 9. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking under the air. What a waste of breath. And then verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. But let me just say what he's saying. This is what this means, and it's very helpful to see, as he's showing us here, why this mattered in Corinth, why this matters at Paraka. I know some of you are maybe, I know it's tempting to check out, but this is, this is what he's saying. He's saying, if all you care about is promoting yourself when you come together, if all you care about is being heard, if, if, if you're, and, and then you're going you're gonna to speak with no intention of building others up, that's not your aim, what's going to happen? The church is just going to disintegrate. People are going to be alienated from one another. It's going to create barriers. It will not bring about the unity that we're supposed to have in the church. It, instead, he's, this is what he's saying. We're going to be like foreigners to one another. Because you're doing your thing. You're doing your thing. We can't understand one another. We're not talking to one another. We're not aiming at building one. We're just like, we're living like foreigners. We're totally estranged from one another, even though we're part of the same church. Listen, whenever we come together... Come to the gathering. Whenever we participate, whenever we use our gifts in the gathering for a purpose other than building up the body, that just fuels estrangement in the church. It alienates people. It fractures the body. How might this happen among us? If it's not tongues and prophecy, how might it happen among us? Listen, you, I, I can, we can preach, we can teach to build others up, or we can preach and teach to show how smart we are. Or I can pretend to show that I'm smart or something like that. And what does that do? It alienates people. It alienates people because they don't think they'll ever measure up or, or they'll be embarrassed by the fact that they're confused by what's being said when it has nothing to do with them. It's totally on the speaker. But you, you can see, you can use your gifts. If you're not using them to build up, it just alienates people. You can, you can administrate to build others up, or you can administrate to stay busy, create structures. You have people who are hurting and have real needs, and, and they feel alienated by all of that, all of those layers. You can, you can serve in the audiovisual ministry. Sorry, Luke, you're the only one back there I see today. And you can serve back there to build up the body, and I know my brother does, or you can serve to, to carve out this possessive little niche, which he actually physically has back there. Uh, <laughs> he closed the door, locked it. Um, no, you can do that for yourself. You can see what I'm saying. You, you, can, you can do these things, and, and so others will feel alienated. They feel there's no possible way that they can be involved in that. So, so I'm saying we, we have our ways of doing this. Anytime, anytime we're aiming for something less than building up one another when we come together, we risk alienating others in the body and dividing the church. So verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. I love this verse. I thought about a lot about this. This is where he, he's really zeroing in on the issue. Because the problem, it's not their zeal. 
It's not that they were too zealous for manifestations of the Spirit. The problem is their lack of zeal for the best things. They are settling for something less. If we're really zealous for the Spirit's powerful working among us, he says, this is what you strive for. You strive to excel in building up the church. Isn't that wonderful? That's, that's how the power of the Holy Spirit is most visibly and clearly demonstrated in the church. Build up the church. This, is, this was to be their driving aim. This is to be our driving aim when we come together. This is what we should strive to do when we gather. This is what we should strive to excel at as a church body. To use whatever gifts He's given us and empowered us to use, to use those for the edification of one another. And what a manifestation of the Spirit's power that will be. Everything we do in worship must tend to building up the body if we want to see the Spirit work mightily, freely, and powerfully among us. And the key, Paul says, to building up and edifying the body is truth. That's his point in verses 13 to 19. So change comes as we're engaging our minds with understandable truth. Verse 13, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Now just pause for a second again. Because there can be confusion here. I don't, I don't think Paul's point here is that tongues, tongues are to be used as some kind of personal, private, devotional language. I know there are, there are brothers and sisters who claim that that's exactly what this verse is warranting. Look at what he says. If I pray in tongues, I don't even know what I'm saying. My mind is unfruitful. If there's not anyone there to interpret, if I don't, it can't interpret, I don't even know what's going on. So he's not commending this sort of thing. And again, this is all in the context of public worship. He's not saying here in your private, this is how you worship in your public. No, he's saying this is when we come together, when the church gathers, he's saying, what will I do if there's no one to interpret tongue speaking? I'll pray with my spirit. That's the human spirit. My, my, the spiritual part of who I am, fully engaged, but I will pray also with my mind. I will pray intelligibly. I will pray with understanding. I will sing praises with my spirit, and I will sing praises also with my mind. He's putting, these, are not, these are not at odds with one another. I'm just thinking of this. Notice all thoughtful, um, thoughtful, heartfelt, sincere, humble, intelligible prayer, it's spiritual. It's spiritual. It, it's not just the, the kind that comes by a, a miraculous enabling of the Spirit to speak another language, but all intelligible prayers and blessings and thanksgivings they're, they're spiritual. They're understood not just by God also, but they're also understood by one another. So I think about that as we come together this, tonight. We have our Sunday night prayer meeting tonight. And these have been just such sweet, refreshing times to come together as a church. And we want to invite you all to participate tonight. But just I'm thinking about that. As we, this is what we're doing. Or we're praying with spirit and with our mind as we come together. These are spiritual prayers that we offer to the God as we speak intelligibly to the Lord and in the hearing of one another. All right, moving on. Verse 16, he continues, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit only, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And remember, that's the issue. That's the concern. Here it is again. It just keeps coming back to this. This is why I'm so concerned about this. The other person is not being built up. It's not about tongues, really. That's the kind of the issue in Corinth, but the real issue is building one another up. And what is it that most supports that end, that aim? And so he's saying, those who don't understand the language because it's unintelligible to them, to them they'll say amen, they don't know what's going on. If you've ever been in a worship service in some other part of the world or some other language group, even in the United States, I remember visiting the Flint Thompson Senegal, and, and, and it... We didn't understand a word of what was spoken in that, in that worship service. And there was nobody translating into English. So you're, so, you're, so you're in those places, and I've been in other places as well. And you're just kind of watching for clues on how to respond. When stand, stand, stand up, sit, clap, what are we doing here? I don't really know what's going on. I've been to a lot of church services, so I kind of, 
understand, see some things that are similar, but you, you really don't know. Now, that's with everybody else knowing what's being said, and I'm just kind of the one on the outside. Now imagine if nobody understands the language that's being spoken. <laughs> nobody understands what's being said. Not even the speaker knows what's being said. The confusion. This is what he's saying. He's saying corporate worship, it's impossible without rational, intelligible communication. Edification, building one another up. It's impossible without communication of words that we can understand. This was his concern. And so he says in verse 18, lest he be misunderstood, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you even. He's not begrudging this gift. It's a wonderful gift. Nevertheless, in church, when we gather, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Five words of biblical instruction that people can understand are more valuable than 10,000 unintelligible words that nobody understands. And so the normal, spirit-filled proclamation of divinely revealed truth and simple language that everybody can understand is hundreds of times more valuable, more desirable than something less. Why? Because it's it's what leads most to others being built up. And that's the thing that he's so concerned about. Edification, building one another up by, by means of intelligible communication of biblical truth. That's what they needed. That's what we need, church. That's what we, we need. And, 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 and so are, are you consciously thinking, when, when you head here for worship on Sunday mornings, how can I use my gifts to build up the body? How can I do that? Lord, what... What are some ways I can, I can build, one and build, build up others? What is it that makes, what is it, makes it a good Sunday for you? A good worship service. Listen, we, we want to have our hearts, our spirits moved. I do. We want to we feel the presence of the, of the Spirit. We want, we want our minds to be informed and challenged and new thoughts to be firing when we leave here. We want our affections for God to be stoked when we gather together. We want our sorrows to be comforted. We want our fears to be confronted with hope when we gather together. But we don't come. Those are fine, but we don't come with an every man for himself mindset. Like the, what, all that matters is me getting what I need out of this assembly. Oh, certainly the Lord ministers to you. But the the greatest benefit comes when we come eager to serve and to bless and to build one another up. I just think of of family vacations. You've been on good family vacations probably and and bad family vacations. Um, This is not trying to make a one-to-one parallel, but are the best and most enjoyable vacations you've ever taken as a family, the ones when you went into it thinking, when every family member went into it thinking, you know what, I need this, and I'm going to do whatever it takes for me to get what I need out of this vacation. I need some me time, and I don't care who's in my way, I'm getting that. So if I, when I want a nap, I'm taking a nap. When I, what I want to eat, I'm going to eat. What I want to do, I'm going to do. So if every family member's thinking like that, now, I'm not saying you don't need a break and you don't need rest and you don't need you, that there's anything wrong with those desires in themselves, but you copy and paste that attitude to every member in that family. How's that vacation going to turn out? It's going to be a real pleasurable experience, isn't it? But if the aim of every member of that family is, yes, I need rest, I'm tired, and it's been a long year, and man, I'm looking forward to this, and I'm excited, but what I want to do is we go away. I want to bless and serve and and do everything I can so that every member of this family finds great joy and, 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 and refreshment in our time together. Oh, that's a totally different experience, isn't it? So, so for the church, our gatherings will be most glorious when we come motivated by that 1 Corinthians 13, Christ-like, others-preferring, self-sacrificing, self-giving love with the aim of building one another up in Christ for the glory of God. Oh, this will be, these will be, these will be glorious. And the, and the times when we've benefited most have been just that, haven't they? So that's the first thing. And that's the longest. Don't worry. We're, they're not equal points here. Love-motivated worshipers, love-motivated worshipers, they care a lot about edification in the church gathering. And we need to, brothers and sisters. And quickly, second, 
Love, this is the second priority of those that are compelled by love that we saw in 1 Corinthians 13. Love-motivated worshipers, they also care about evangelism in church gatherings. And so Paul starts out in verse 20, something of a rebuke for them, doesn't he? This is verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be, be no, no offense, children, but this is a rebuke. Uh, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Nothing wrong with being a child, but it's wrong to act like a child when you're an adult. And so, in what ways was, was your thinking about worship childish? Uh, I think there was clearly selfishness that we see. Um, they're consumed by things that are flashy and exciting rather than things that are actually nourishing to the body. I mean, you put two plates of food before a child and one of them has, you know, red jello and, and fruit loops and gold first goldfish crackers on it and the other one has you know a piece of grilled fish and broccoli and rice on it and which one are they going to choose well every time they're going for the fruit loops um they're not stupid no no (laughs) but they 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 don't understand that what's nourishing and good for the body is is the way but they're they're immediately drawn to those things that are just attracted their kids are attracted to things that are short term not long term they want they want the, the the quick fix and, and, and what feels good now, and they're, drawn, they're not drawn to what feels, what is best for me down the road. I think it's just some of what he's saying. He's saying, it's time to grow up, guys. Your, your thinking is quite juvenile when you come together as, as a church. Mature understanding of this whole question of tongues and prophecy. It's thinking about what's healthy and good for others. For the body. Good for brothers and sisters in Christ. Edification, that's what we've seen already. And also good for any unbelievers who might be present. Good for evangelism. What will non-Christians make of all of this in our gatherings? If, if an unbeliever comes in among us, what will they think about it? And that's his point in the, as he quotes verse 21 to 25. So he quotes from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 28. And, and, and there he says, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And what's he saying? Well, in the context of Isaiah 28, the prophet has been preaching God's word to the nation of Israel. And so the people, though, they're, they're, they're in this state of drunken unbelief, and they're mocking the prophet. And so he's preaching God's word in a language that they can understand, and they laugh at him, and they say, this is utterly nonsense. What you're saying is, is childish nonsense. That's how they're mocking Isaiah. And so God says to the prophet, God says to Isaiah, you tell my people this. You've heard my word in your own language and you called it nonsense. I'll show you nonsense. (laughs) You you, you want it, you got it. And the nonsense you're going to hear is the foreign language of the Assyrian army, Assyrian soldiers coming into your land, invading your country and taking you into captivity. I'll, I'll speak a language to you that you don't understand. I'll speak nonsense to you, but when I do it, it's going to be a message of judgment. And so Paul's taking that in a very, very insightful way, and he's saying, this is what will happen in a church when a visitor comes into your congregation where everyone's speaking in tongues. They will not understand. It will be nonsense to them. They will not have an opportunity to hear the gospel and be saved. They won't be caused to think. They won't be taught. They'll hear a meaningless, unintelligible jumble of words, and it will be a judgment to them. Without interpretation, he's saying tongues don't edify, they don't encourage, they don't exhort others, they don't evangelize. Instead, the gospel, the truth of the gospel is cloaked in this veil of unintelligibility and incoherence. So he says, verse 22, the tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues without interpretation, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, Will they not say that you are out of your minds? And you can imagine the scene. Someone stands up, speaks in tongues, unintelligible words to probably everybody there, certainly the vast majority, and another and another, and maybe multiple people are speaking at the same time. No interpretation is being given. And, and, and so the, those who are speaking in tongues, they're not edifying the body, they're not evangelizing the lost, they're basically just standing out in the crowd. And so an unbeliever, a visitor, completely unfamiliar with this miraculous gift of, of tongues, uh, all they hear is gibberish. And Paul's saying the conclusion that they reach as they walk out of the room is these people are crazy. They're lunatics. 
Not only, not only do uninterpreted tongues not edify believers, is what he's saying to them in their situation, they also serve as a sign of alienation of unbelievers that just cements their unbelief. It does nothing to show the compelling power and truth of the gospel. It just serves to harden their unbelief and the rejection of God, and therefore it's a sign of judgment for them. Paul's saying, that's not our business, this side of the, of, of the return of King Jesus. That's not our job, is to, to bring this, this message, this nonsensical message of judgment. No, when Christians, when non-Christians come, we want to hold forth in this intelligible, we want to make it as clear as we can, this wonderful gospel of grace. We want to attract people to Jesus Christ and His, and his grace, not repel them away from Him. That's not our job now. We, we, want the, we want to draw them to the Savior, not push them away. We want it to be a compelling offer of the gospel. But verse 24, if a, if a non-Christian comes in to your worship services and what he hears is this clear declaration of God's truth, look what happens. He is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So because they can actually understand the words in their own language, the Spirit uses this to, to do this mighty work involving conviction and disclosure and, and worship and finally acknowledging God's presence. Now, granted, the gift of prophecy, I don't believe, exists in the way that it did then. But the, the prophetic dimension that's inherent, inherent whenever God's, God's revealed truth is proclaimed, it, it continues to operate with the same kind of force. I think some of you know this from personal experience. Some of you trusted Christ in the context of a church gathering. How many of you did? Was it in like a church service of some kind or some kind of worship, worship gathering when you trusted Christ? Oh, that's fine. All right, I see several hands. Um... And so maybe you came to church one Sunday morning and, and you sat there in that chair, you sat there in that pew before the service and maybe if you had a bulletin, you looked there and said, where, where are we going to be reading? And you had a Bible in the pew and you pulled that out, looked it up and you said, what in the world does this have to do with me? I mean, it's time to drift off to the land of Nod and just wait, wait this out while this preacher drones on for the next several minutes. And so, but then what happens unexpectedly to you? Something Something began to happen as the Bible's explained and the preacher begins to talk to you about the ways we lie to ourselves and deceive ourselves about our sin and about our need for the Savior. And he began to show you yourself in the mirror of the scriptures. It's like he's reading your journal. He's reading your text. He's reading your emails. He knows your mind. That's what it feels like. That's what it felt like to you. And, 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 and you understand you've been, you've been trying to hide from the gaze of God. But he sees it all, and so you're guilty in his sight. Nothing you could do could change that, and you're powerfully convicted of your sin and your need of a Savior by what you hear. And then the preacher points you to Christ, and you heard the good news, and, and a message that you may have heard many times before if you've grown up in church or you've been in church many times about the cross that Jesus bore and the curse of God that he bore on our behalf for sinners and there's liberty for captives in Christ. There's, there's freedom from the bondage of sin in Christ. He, he's come to set us free. And suddenly your heart's running. It's running to Christ in faith. You're, you're, you're crying out with urgency for, for cleansing and pardon and forgiveness and mercy and renewal. And looking to Jesus Christ as your only Savior. Some of you, again, you know that experience. You've, had, you've, you've been there. And may the Lord do that today, brothers and sisters, in our gatherings for those that might be here without Christ, may he do that for you if you're here today without Christ. I pray that he would work. I pray that he would take his word as it's been explained and applied in the power of the Spirit and would crack open your hearts and pour grace in. Draw you to faith in Jesus. All those pet sins that you've squirreled away in kind of the recesses of your life, that they would be brought out into the light and you would say, I'm hopeless without Jesus. I need grace. I need forgiveness. And I know Christ is Christ holds that out to me now because he's died for my sin and he's risen again and he holds out to me now life for all who would believe in me. Trust him today. Maybe he's working in your heart right now. But church, as we, brothers and sisters in Christ, this has got to be part of the reason we're coming together. We come together and we want to say, I want to do everything to see that we are built up together in Jesus Christ. I want to see 
when I come together, I want us to make sure that everything I do, it's not in any way a hindrance to the gospel of Christ. I want to be mindful that there are those without Jesus in our midst and who do not trust him. And, and, I, and I, I care about their souls. May God make it so among us, church. So why are you here today? Why have you endured a 50-plus minute long sermon um, on tongues and prophecy? <laughs> why stand and sing in just a moment? Why stay for Sunday school? Why be intentional with your conversations after we sing the doxology in a moment? And why take your shift in the nursery? Why, why, why do these things? I hope that you see why. I hope that you see the wonderful relevance of these verses now. Being compelled by the more excellent way, love, let's aim, let's aim to strive to excel in building up the church and hinder no one without Christ here from hearing the gospel in our gatherings. The, 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 the aim in all of this, it all flows out of love. It all flows out of love. And it all... It stems from this desire to say, you know what? My interests aren't the most important thing when I come together. And I close with these words that just draw our gaze to Christ. Words that we're very familiar with. Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 4, Let each of you not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we, we thank you for the power that we have in Jesus Christ to even, to even begin to see this kind of love, others preferring love manifested in our lives. We confess, this is not the way we're hardwired. We, we come to the gathering many times thinking of self and our own interests and what we want to get, what, we, what we're willing to endure so we can get out of here. I pray that we would have different eyes, eyes that, that see as Christ sees our gatherings and would see the most important things, that, that others would be built up and that the lost would hear the gospel all for the glory of your name. So, Lord, use, um, use our gatherings, Lord, to, to, to make this pronounced statement, Christ, that we're going to sing now, that, Christ, you, you are better. You are better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.